It's a beautiful new day and welcome Green Chatters to the Green Living Chat podcast. My name is David Ewusimenza and I'm super excited to bring you a new episode today where we are looking at sustainability in the corporate world with my guest, Michael Ofosuhine Wise. Michael is a climate and nature lead at Business for Nature. He leads the company's efforts to demonstrate and amplify credible business actions on nature as well as activities to simplify and converge high-level nature and climate action for businesses. He has extensive experience working with leading global companies to incorporate sustainability into their corporate strategies. Prior to joining Business for Nature, he worked with the World Council for Sustainable Development and help companies to develop and advocate for ambitious climate policies within major international processes. He has experience in the area of measuring and valuing of corporate impact and dependencies on nature, social and human capital to inform strategic business decision making. And on today's episode, which we recorded on the recent Earth Day, so you'll be hearing a little bit more about that in our conversation, we dived into some of the social issues that are related to environmental related studies. So Michael shared his thoughts and his own personal experience on this. Now to the topic, we dived into how he's bringing businesses and policymakers together to take action on sustainability. We also discussed why businesses are now taking sustainability more seriously and some of the things that businesses take more serious. Is it a branding, customer trust, or partnerships, or probably some legal issues? And we talked about challenges in working with companies towards sustainability. This and more in today's episode. But before we dive into the episode, we cannot keep a blind eye on the fact that today is Father's Day and we just want to say Happy Father's Day to all fathers out there, especially you Green Chatters who are committed to listen to this podcast week after week. We really appreciate you and we cherish you so much. And if you haven't called your father yet, just give him a call and say something nice to him and tell him how much you appreciate him. Thank you also to our team at Echo Amid Solutions as well as Green Living Chat Podcast for supporting us. Thanks to Dr. Daniel Fifi Hagan, who also joined me as a co-host on this particular episode. So now let's dive into the episode. This is the Green Living Chat Podcast. Here we define sustainability, educate and discuss feasible solutions to achieve a regenerative ecosystem. In a world where sustainability has become a cliche and misused in practice, we bring you inspiring stories from the industry, research and development and all stakeholders in between. And together we can promote the sustainability agenda across the globe. This podcast is proudly produced and sponsored by our team at Echo Amid Solutions in Ghana. We come your way with new episodes this and every Sunday at 6 p.m. GMT. So dear Green Chatters, let's get started. Hello Michael, thank you so much for joining us today on the Green Living Chat podcast. Super excited to have you here and you have no idea how excited we are to to have you on the podcast. So yeah, welcome. Thank you very much, David and Daniel. It's also a pleasure to be on this podcast. 
it's really exciting, especially uh, doing this on uh, Earth Day. I think that's a really uh, important milestone where obviously we're remembering the environment, we're thinking about the environment, also our impacts and, you know, how the environment needs to be protected moving forward. So I think this is a really great day to be having these kinds of conversations. And I'm looking forward to a really interesting conversation with you guys. Wow, this is fun. You already pimped out for the ad day. We actually didn't realize that <laughs> we chose this day to record, but I think it's such a perfect day to record. Unfortunately, I mean, this episode might be uploaded like months <laughs> after that, but I mean, it's still exciting to uh, to do this. I would like to even go a little bit further. Um, what What is your whole idea about a theme for this year? And I mean, you work within this space. And of course, I think um, there's a lot that we have to pay attention to. Um, when I woke up this morning, I actually saw this post on LinkedIn. I was talking about, I mean, what is there to celebrate? Um, is it just a celebration for you or you think it's something remarkable that has an impact on policymakers and, you know, environmental educators, environmental engineers, and all people working within the space and even for the everyday person who has no idea what this is? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think Earth Day is is growing to be an increasingly important day in the annual calendar, right? I think since it started uh, on April 22nd in 1970, the idea was really to um, have a specific day where we remember the environment and what, you know, it provides to us. We depend on the environment for food, for the air that we breathe, for the infrastructure that we develop for building our cities. Uh, and there's so many things that the environment provides to us that we take for granted, right? So I think having a specific day um, to just take stock and, and be grateful for all these things that we, um, you know, take from the environment and, and really use to, to thrive as a human species, I think is very important. And, and that level of importance is only going to grow, especially in this context where we know um, that, you know, climate change, nature loss are growing and the impact on our environment is, is also um, getting to a very deleterious level. So all of that framing, I think it's very, very important for us to you know, think about this ESG theme, which talks about investing in the environment, right? This is the time that we need to start taking concrete action to protect our environment because that's you know, the source of life. That's what our entire economy is based on. Um, so I think, yeah, the Earth Day is definitely one of those days that uh, we need to continue cherishing and, and, and the importance is only going to grow as um, the years go. Yeah. Since we have you on such a special day, I'm sure we'll end the podcast with probably your special message to everyone. Uh, concerning this from probably the office where you you are sitting. Um, Daniel is someone who works from the sky. <laughs> if you have any thoughts on Ed Day and even what uh, Michael is sharing. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very good day to be having this conversation. Also, coincidentally, uh, I, I actually submitted a paper today about climate change and uh, global warming. So I'm, I'm very happy and, and I hope that the reviewer, sorry, the editor picks up on <laughs> The, on the coincidence. <laughs> yeah, because in that paper, I discussed some of the ways that uh, natural processes inhibit or uh, create a resilience of the, of the planet to global warming. And so it's, it's, it's definitely right in the, um, in the theme. And, uh, and, and I think that it's very interesting that we choose one day to remember <laughs> the earth um, because it's the earth where we live every day. And uh, and definitely something that 
shouldn't be a, a, a day that we remember, but a day that sort of continues to uh, remind us of the continual importance of the earth, uh, not just for a day, but for the rest of the year. Hopefully that we, uh, we are able to invest every day and not just one day uh, into, into protecting our earth. And it's, it's, I was just thinking when Michael said the statement to protect the earth, uh, I was saying, huh, interestingly, what are we protecting the earth from? And it looks like we are protecting the earth from ourselves. <laughs> so we are, we, are the, we are the judge, we are the executioner, we are the prosecutor, and we are also the, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we are that, that's like, a really interesting yeah. take, Daniel. Yes. Um, it's, 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 it's conversation that we have all the time as well around when we talk about, you know, pro- protecting the environment and protecting the earth. If we look at the history of the earth, right, it's been there much longer than us as human beings, right? So in, in, in a way, when we talk about protecting the earth, it's really protecting the earth to protect us, right, and to feed us um, with the stable environment that allows us as human beings to thrive because um, we are very delicate and we need these conditions that the environment and the earth provides us to be able to live, right? And without these conditions um, on, on, on earth, we might potentially go extinct in addition to all the other um, living organisms that are already going into extinction. So I think there's definitely um, the call to protect the earth with the idea of actually preserving human life. I think that's the end goal. And I really like what you mentioned about the fact that, you know, the Earth Day, while it's being heralded as the one day that we're thinking about the Earth, this is something that needs to be an everyday lifestyle. When we talk about sustainable living, you don't need to reserve it for just um, one day every year. This is a way of living that should be, uh, you know, everyday. All right. So um, super excited. The conversation has gotten already heated up. Let's let's get to know you a little bit, um, Michael. I'm sure you listening to the podcast already, you've heard so much about who Michael is, but we want to dive into his childhood. What brought him here, right? There is actually an interesting um, fun fact on, on your company's website that says that in 2017, <laughs> you played... <Right. laughs> Um, in, in, in a football club or something. I think maybe you can throw a little bit more light about it. You're a big guy. You work with so many um, big industries. And for sure, I don't know, I think you have practically introduced yourself several times. What is this one thing that you haven't said anywhere that probably <laughs> someone might think that, oh, I didn't know this about Michael. But most importantly, we would like to know how your journey actually started and why you decided to choose sustainability. Yeah, um, I, I think, you know, the, the one surprising thing that people hear when I introduce myself is the fact that I played some semi-professional football in Germany for a year. Um, but just to take you back, um, I'm actually Ghanaian-German, and there's there's a story to both my biological parents um, are from Ghana, so I was born and raised in Ghana. Uh, but at the age of nine, they raised me. So from, from age nine, I was living with her in Accra, um, I had my uh, high, high school education in, in Accra in a school called Alpha Beta Education Centers, um, after which I took a gap year, and that's when I played football for a year. So after uh, my IGCSE's own A-levels, uh, I decided I wanted to do something different because I was very much 
into sports, music, and arts um, as, a, as a young teenager growing up. And I wanted to just explore those other interests. Right. So I moved to Germany with my brother for a year and I played um, football. Uh, but then after, after, after the year, I decided that I think the journey to professional football was going to be a long one. I ended up coming back to Ghana to go to Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology, KNUST, where um, I started you know, studying environmental science. Um, so that's really where the roots of, of my, my career path were, were born. But it's, it's something that I also, you know, was indoctrinated in by my German stepmother, who is very much in touch with nature. Um, I remember as a child, without even understanding the implications, you know, we were recycling uh, our waste at home. We had a composting station at the back of the house where she made us, you know, separate our waste. Um, we were giving the glasses to the security man to sell to, you know, the, the local traders and the, these aspects of sustainable living that we were all, you know, trained with um, as children. So even without actually understanding the implications of that on the environment, we just had that habit of, you know, growing up in that nature. So I think that's something that was taught to me at a really young age and uh, made the trajectory in, you know, environment and, um, you know, environmental policy even more easier. So just a, a little background. I don't know if you want me to go into more of the education side as well. I'm happy to go there. Yeah, I think we would we'll be happy to hear more about that because um, one of the things that I wanted to sort of chip in was, um, do you find this to be um, a first choice path for Ghanaian for Ghanaians? I, I don't I don't see that. Um, you know, it's there's this sort of monotony in Ghana of career paths and. Uh, and it's, it's actually one of the things that I committed myself to doing after high school, came up with a group where we were sort of trying to uh, talk to high school kids about, you know, there's more than there's more than medical doctor and lawyer and sort of electrical engineer and all those sort of uh, familiar professions that we have in Ghana. And so what do you think of this? I mean, we want to hear more about you. Uh, is it was it a first choice path? And do you think that you know, how did you find that decision to choose it and to really pursue it passionately uh, as a, uh, you know, with a backdrop of what we know in Ghana? And, uh, you know, for me, this wasn't the first choice path uh, in that sense. But then when I started studying these things, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is actually what I had wanted to do all my life. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's very interesting um, because... For me, growing up in a, in a home uh, with a white mother, I think also played a really important role in this path that I took. And to a certain extent, I was very much removed from you know, the typical um, career trajectory. So both my, my parents um, are into the arts world very heavily. So my father is an artist himself. He's a sculptor. He does you know, draw. And, and other sort of African artifacts. And my mother is more of an economist, but um, they had a business which was practically, you know, my father creating uh, different artifacts and my, my mother sort of leading on the exports and the business um, side of the company where they were selling all of these artifacts across the world. So I was never really pushed to pursue any of these traditional um, careers of you know, being a doctor, being a lawyer, being an accountant. Um, and like I mentioned, these things around sustainability just being so ingrained in our daily lives 
when I saw them in class, all we were being taught about them in school, it just felt so easy and so natural and I could relate. It made so much sense because I was already living that life at home. So um, I remember when we were studying, um, so this is at the O level, um, we had to, to choose one sort of add-on class and it was between sociology, development studies or environmental management. And I chose to, to go into environmental management. This was even before I, I went to university. So I think that's where I started building my knowledge, um, coupled obviously with a little bit of interest in the, in, in the subject area. Um, but once I came back, uh, so after high school, I mentioned that I went to play football in Germany for a year. And then I came back to this was my first choice. But here's where it gets interesting because um, I went into my first year class um, full of environmental sciences. And I remember very vividly the lecturer asking this exact question that who was here as their first choice. And I was the only person that raised my hand. Wow. I was really, it was a shock to me, right? I was like, what did you guys all want to do? And then everybody, <laughs> you know, talking about how they wanted to either be a doctor or they wanted to go into biomedicine and that didn't work. So this was like the next best option. And I, I was really surprised by that. But I think it, it's very true. Um, for me, this was the path that I wanted to be on. This is something that I was really and genuinely interested in, purely because I was brought up understanding the principles of sustainability, but it's also something that I think I was naturally good at because I understood. I, I wasn't expecting the conversation to go this way, but I think, I mean, from, from this story, and if we connect this with other stories that um, we have heard here on the podcast, I think that um, parental upbringing and, you know, the things that we learn from home and the things that we learn from our communities actually play a very important role. But I mean, what, what I saw very significant in what you said was, I mean, no one actually raised up his hand that they were doing this as, a, as their first option, something that they really wanted to do. Wow. And that's very interesting because it actually reflects our knowledge that we have, even in this modern world. Uh, on environmental stuff, environmental management, conservation and everything, because people really don't see the importance of, you know, as we started even this, I was asking the question about something I saw on LinkedIn that people don't know whether this is very necessary to even have a day to celebrate it. Others are also of the opinion that maybe we should actually be passionate and caring about the environment every day rather than setting another day. And some people just don't care about whatever happens. I mean, it's a day to show green colors on in your company's um, posts on social media. And actually by 5 p.m. today, it's gone. <laughs> and we just go back to our normal activities. I, I just wanted to add, add to that uh, because I think there is obviously a reason for, for this, right? When you have young people growing up, and not only young people, just also the parents as well, I think there's a, a level of ignorance around, you know, what this actually means and the different careers that people can make out of studying environment or being within this space. Um, and I think that was what was reflecting in my class because I got so curious that I was asking people reasons why you know, they wouldn't choose as their first job uh, or their first course. And I think majority of people were just not sure what the end goal was going to be, what they could do after their education or how they could, you know, further their life just studying uh, you know, climatology or 
environmental science, there was no clear you know, career pathway available. And I think in addition to that, um, there was also a little bit of a stigma around somebody studying environmental science. And maybe this was just in, in the university that I studied. Um, but that I remember that the, you know, the people that were studying my course um, were being called like the Zoom lion people in quote because they thought the only career path was to go and you know, clean the streets, right? So obviously that's not something that people would want to affiliate with. Um, so I think just also working to, to clean up that stigma around you know, being somebody that's working in environment, somebody that's working um, in waste management, so all, all of these things. Um, it is very important. I think that's what, one of the reasons why a podcast like this is also, uh, you know, going to be instrumental in changing the narrative around how we think about nature, the environment, you know, sustainable living um, and, and making it accessible, making it cool, making it really can, you know, live in a sustainable way or, or think about, you know, clear paths that they can, you know, have an impact on, on the environment. So I think this is uh, one of the really important things that also drew me, drew me to come here because outside of my work, I, I like to show that beyond, you know, being able to care about the environment, I can also, like I said, play uh, football. I, I like to be very heavy in the art space. I like to influence. I like to travel. I like to show things beyond just being an environmental, you know, nerd. And I think that makes it more accessible, make people see themselves in this space as well. Yeah. Wonderful story. You know, what... What a lot of people don't know is that um, there was a research that was done by the Global Future Studies and Research um, about the, the 15 challenging global problems. Um, and the first one was sustainable development and climate change. That's the, that's the very first one. And then clean water, population and resources. And then, and then you find sort of like health sciences in number eight. And, you know, so this is something that I think we are not introduced to, uh, at least in Ghana, um, at very early ages, to recognize that, you know, if we want to change something in our in our in our country, um, there is, you know, this is what the world is concerned about, and this is where we can begin to make impact. But we focus on on areas that you know are sort of maybe, excuse me to say, the secondary. At the end of the day, we are not able to make the impact that we want to make because. We haven't been introduced to these ones, but thank you so much for that, uh, Michael. All right, this is getting super exciting already. Um, but let's dive into today's conversation, finally. <laughs> um, <laughs> today, we want to talk more about what you're doing in your current um, office and how it is, you know, um, you are dealing with all these industries. And other. But I want to start from some a project that I saw you were involved in um, recently. You, you joined this project that sought to foster strong policy signals to promote, you know, something you guys tagged, the race to the top, right? Why do you think this was necessary and necessary projects to involve yourself in? And maybe could you highlight a little bit of the objectives of this project and why it is important for uh, the industry. I started my career with the World Business Council for Sustainable uh, Development, WBCSD, which is a Geneva-based organization that brings uh, over 200 plus companies, um, the biggest companies in the world, to really this sustainability agenda, right? And within that, I was working as a climate um, policy lead, um, working with around working with 90 companies to really help um, bring a united voice of 
ambitious leading businesses into the international climate um, negotiations. After that, and my, my current role is within a different organization, but this specific project that you're talking about was with my, with my previous role. Um, so within, within that process, uh, which is under the, auspice, uh, the auspices of the UNFCCC, we were basically leading um, businesses to make really ambitious commitments in line with the Paris Agreement. Right, so the Paris Agreement, um, which talks about getting um, the global economy to a place where we are operating within the 1.5 degree threshold, which is where the science tells us we need to be. Um, and to get there, we need stakeholders from all across the global economy. So we need governments to do their part, we need businesses to do their part in terms of certain targets, and we need civil society to also do their part. And our task within this role, uh, which was led by the, the high-level climate champion in charge of non-state actor action within the UNFCCC, was to bring you know, as many businesses to the table to really understand what is going on, to make the commitments, um, and more importantly, also to start acting in a way that will put us on the right track to achieving this 1.5 degree goal. So yeah, so we were obviously, you know, getting the companies to make the commitments, uh, but also thinking about how we're tracking progress. Um, and then importantly, also bringing these companies together with policymakers to talk around what policymakers can even do in terms of regulations and policies to make them be even more ambitious, to go further, faster. So, you know, the, the basis of this was around a theory of change called the ambition loop, which is you know, based on a, a, a fundamental principle that action really begets action, right? So on one hand, if businesses are taking action, um, they're able to go to the policymakers and tell them that, hey guys, look, we want to try and be as ambitious as possible. We are starting to take action. Um, we're reducing our emissions in our supply chains, in our operations. Um, we're taking X, Y, Z steps. Uh, but in order for us to actually be much more impactful, we need you to enact um, these rules of, you know, giving us a level playing field in terms of regulations, things like carbon pricing, all of these things that can help them really uh, amplify their action. And by that action that they take in, it also gives the, the, you know, policymakers the confidence to put in place the right regulations, the right rules, the right policies that, you know, will in turn give businesses the, the confidence to also invest more and take actions. So is this positive feedback loop um, that we were trying to, to bring um, to life by getting companies to take action and then getting um, you know, the policymakers to also help speed and scale up what they're doing already. Wow. I'm sure Daniel will have a lot to um, say about this. I'll be interested to know what he would like to say about this. But um, honestly, we actually thought this would be an, a very interesting way to start this conversation uh, because it's, it's good to know what is actually going on in, in the process when maybe policies are being made, right? Are industries or the, are the businesses in, involved, are companies involved, right? So this sort of report that I, I didn't get to read uh, the full report, but I got it just as you were saying that it's a way to sort of interact with the industries and the, and the companies to let them know what role they are playing in this and also to kind of bridge the gap between them and policymakers. But in, yeah. we already know the impact. We already heard about, you know, all the things that we are doing. 
But then what is very interesting to me is that companies sign up with or they register with EIAs, right? They tell whoever is giving them the licenses to operate that, okay, I know I'm going to admit this. This is how I'm going to take care of it. Um, there are policies that are supposed to make them work more efficiently towards that. Um, they are also auditing people have all the certificates that you can think of. There are people or industries or agencies actually who are also monitoring them. Where is the loophole in this? If we have these programs or let's say monitoring or activities already going on, why do we still have a loophole where industries now or companies still need to be reminded of you know, their role in climate change? The, the question around why businesses are, first of all, starting to take this a lot more seriously is that, you know, that the conversation around corporate sustainability has evolved a lot. Right, it's moved from an era where it was seen as an add-on to corporate social social responsibility, which was not really integrated into corporate business principles. Right, so businesses will operate for the year, make their profits, and at the end they'll just chuck some money to philanthropy or something and call it. Um, but I think now we are at a stage where the science is really telling us about the impacts that climate change, nature loss. Um, and to a certain level, inequality in society is having on our global system. And there is a clear correlation between that and the impact on business, right? So right now, sustainability has very much become a business challenge. And there are very clear physical risks, um, but also some transitional risks. So if you look at the physical risks, you're seeing that, you know, with for example, uh, rising sea levels, a lot of business operations that are in coastal regions and coastal zones are being affected. Um, and, you know, leading businesses are realizing that, no, we need to start taking matters into our own hands if we want to protect our operations, our assets that are in these vulnerable regions. It's not only, you know, high-level sea rises. We have places um, or operations in places where climate change is causing, you know, uh, an increase in water droughts that the you know, companies will need for production, et cetera. So they're really seeing some of these physical risks affecting their business operation and ultimately affecting profit. So it makes sense for them to take these things seriously, not because of only, you know, the regulations and authorities, but to ultimately to be able to please their shareholders, right? Then you have the transitional risks, which are also increasingly growing of significance. Right. So one is, for example, reputational risk. You have companies that are increasingly trying to make sure that their branding, how they are perceived um, in society, is that they're progressive, forward thinking, supporting the environment. And that is a lot of social currency for businesses right now. How you are perceived within the consumer market is very important. And I think that's making the, the interests for, for companies to engage in these um, activities and policies very seriously. And then um, I think things like being able to recruit essential talent within these big operations. Um, there was a research that was launched, I think, two years ago, talking about, you know, the millennial job market and how these employees going into the job market want to work for purpose-driven companies, right? So if you want to be a company that is attracting top talent, well-educated talent, competent talent, these guys are asking you to, you know, be environmentally conscious, socially responsible, 
Uh, and that is a real driving force for companies uh, taking actions. And I think the last thing that I'll, I'll end with is around um, legal issues. Um, we are also seeing the number of, you know, court cases and legal issues that companies dealing with, particularly around um, climate growing uh, at a very interesting rate. And most of them are related to environment, climate change, or nature. Very recently, Shell, the, the global oil and gas company, was taken to court in Switzerland because of their, their latest sort of net zero transition plan, which is not aligned with the government or, or, of the Netherlands. They are currently in court trying to get out of this. And it's not only Shell, there are so many other organizations that are going through such um, legal issues. So this is not only um, an issue that companies are having to deal with on the side, it's very much integral and it's affecting business, it's affecting the, top, the double line, uh, you know, the profit margins, so it's affecting their bottom line. Um, so I think that's really what's driving a lot of uh, the interest in engaging and taking action, but also um, trying to speak to the policymakers to create the level playing field. One thing that I'll just end with now is that, you know, while we have the companies that are starting to lead the chart in, in taking action and, you know, working to act on sustainability, it, it becomes difficult if, you know, you have just a few companies doing this because you still have policies that incentivize a lot of, you know, the environmentally harmful yeah. um, practices. And without regulation to really incentivize in the, in the reverse order, you have these companies that are, you know, taking the initiative to be, <laughs> to be environmentally sustainable, being on the losing <laughs> end, right? Because if you are spending, um, you know, a lot of your your potential profits yeah. in, for example, renewables, which are increasingly, you know, dropping um, now in price, but I think currently is is still slightly more expensive than fossil fuels. Um, and the fact that fossil fuels in most countries are still heavily subsidized by the government, yeah. um, that puts you at a disadvantage, right? Why should I spend so much money in, uh, you know, investing in renewables when my peers who are in the same market with me competing for the same market, uh, for the same yeah. customers are benefiting from, uh, Very true. you know, subsidies that, that are being given by, by the government. So I think that's also what makes it difficult. But, but the business case is increasingly uh, becoming clear and I think that's the trajectory that businesses are, are going towards. You, you touched on really, really serious matters. Uh, Daniel, I don't know if you have any... <laughs> I'm sure you <laughs> you have so many things going on up in your head. Hi there, just a quick one. If you find our conversations worth listening, why don't you share them with your friends and connections? Please help us reach more and new listeners by leaving a review, commenting, or rating us on any platform where you get your podcast. We can't wait to hear your thoughts and ideas, so share them with us via a social media platform or email. Find more details in the show notes. Now let's get back into today's conversation. Yeah, I'm just trying to filter <laughs> what needs to come out. Um, <laughs> I'm actually very impressed by, by how seriously the science is being taken um i i at least 
maybe I haven't spoken with too many people, or maybe I I I I I, I haven't been exposed too much, but um, I'm I'm impressed, and I'm very I'm very happy, and I'm encouraged actually as a climate scientist to um you know to continue to do what I do because it looks like um it looks like the science is being taken very very seriously, but I I I'm also wondering um that is this sort of awareness and um these um strategies that we are for instance the company that you work with or you are working with and what you are doing I, I, I'm jumping to a question that we, we are to ask later because I think it, it will fit here in the sense that is this something that you find everywhere and um you know for instance is it the same awareness that is being propagated or that is being you know that is being sort of publicized in a place like Nigeria or Ghana or, you know, what is the gap between how Switzerland is taking this seriously and how Ghana is taking this seriously? And I want to know sort of where the gap is, because I'm sure that all the governments would be aware. I mean, uh, the COP is, is, is something that at least makes us know that all governments are aware of this, but are all governments treating, uh, treating it in a similar way? And in that case, would that make it more difficult for you to do your work in, uh, say, um, a developing or underdeveloped country uh, compared to how you do your work in a developed country? And, and I'm sure that you've had experiences. Um, David has been having some conversations with some of the youth in Ghana, a group that um, is very passionate about um, you know, environmental problems in Ghana. And it seems like they are struggling, if I'm, if I'm not wrong, David, um, they are they are struggling with with making their voices heard. They are struggling with getting policies, uh, you know, pushed. And and I'm just wondering, you know, is the science being taken seriously everywhere? Um, because I I would I would love to know, and I would love to uh, see this the science, you know, being taken seriously everywhere. Yeah, I I think that's a really interesting question uh, about the science and and whether it's being taken seriously or not. Um, I think we've, you know, reached the point where the science has to be taken seriously because it's, it's inevitable, right? We are seeing the impacts of climate change right before our eyes. It's not theoretical anymore. Sorry, let me, Michael, let me, <laughs> if, do you think, just, just a quick one, do you think this sort of obviousness is obvious everywhere? <laughs> I think in 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 most places where they where they matter, they the science is inevitable. However, it's obviously dependent on economy or the the, the country to interpret it in a way that communicates the message, right? Because the evidence is no longer debatable. If you look at global temperatures over the last five years, you will see a steady incline. But beyond that, if you look at the impacts of these changing temperatures right in front of our eyes, the number of bushfires that we've seen in California has just skyrocketed, caused billions of damage in, um, in revenue, and that's undisputed. We saw what happened in Australia at the end of uh, at the beginning of, of last year, um, and also at the beginning of this year very polarizing situations. The, the, the whole country was on fire. And just at the beginning of this year, the whole country was almost nearly flooded, right? Um, let's bring it back to, to the African continent as well. 
Um, I think in 2019, we were in Africa for, for Africa Climate uh, Week, where Cyclone Idai in Mozambique um, and in the surrounding countries all were ex experiencing very, very, uh, yeah, devastating you know, situations. You would, you would see the videos of, of the flooding, of uh, the impacts that it was having on people. And I think the, the issue is that none of this is new, but I think the frequency with which they are happening now is, is just something that you can't deny. I mean, you can deny, but it doesn't change the fact that it's happening, right? So any discerning government is having to take the science seriously. Even if you're not ready to act, you need to acknowledge that, wow, okay, let's look at what the science is saying, and then we can decide how, you know, we, we decide to tackle it in our, in our respective countries. So I think that's really the, the baseline for, for us. And a lot of the work that we do um, is, is dependent uh, and driven by the science. But when it comes to the seriousness with, with which action is taken, I think that's where you have um, the disparities, right? Uh, but within that, I also always, you know, caution um, because we, I think we're very quick to dismiss the global South and African countries when it comes to taking action. Within the UNFCCC, uh, there, there is this principle of CBDR, which means um, common but differentiated responsibilities, right? We know that we are in this global crisis because of that the different sort of inputs of CO2 into the, the global economy, which was mostly driven by the industrial revolution, um, primarily led, led by the global north, right? So I think when we're respecting this principle, there, there is the onus on, um, you know, those leading countries to really lead the charge as well. And that's not to say that we shouldn't put any pressure, but, I think we need to put their actions in context for what they need to do. Africa contributes 4% to global climate um, emissions, right? So if we transform our entire African economy, we are only going to reduce that 4% that we, we contribute, right? So the potential for impact is not comparable to China or the US or Russia or the entire EU, right? who has, you know, I think China has 21, the US has like 16, the EU somewhere around here. These are the big areas of pockets where there is real potential for impact, which will affect the, the global economy. Uh, so I think there's also that nuance. And then when you look at, you know, the impacts, we know that the impacts affect the global South more. So when we also talk about climate action within those contexts, I think there's sometimes a lot of focus on mitigation, reducing um, you know, emissions in the global south, when that's not really the, the, the challenge for us to solve. Like we can put solar panels all across Africa um, and that won't solve the impacts that climate change is having on us because we need climate resilience infrastructure. I think our angle to climate change should really be preserving our vulnerable economies, right? And, and I think that's where the conversation really needs to go in our action and where we need to really try this. How do we structure our economy to make sure that we have the most climate resilient roads, hospitals, schools, when the winds come in crazy fashions, we need to build in a way that they withstand 
those heavy winds and, and make sure that you know the vulnerable people in society are protected against the impacts because the impacts are already here. So I think when we talk about climate action and you know what needs to be done in different economies, there is that lens that we need to put on. There's there's so much to feedback on, um, and and I'm so happy. Um, are there some points that you are making, for instance, the differences between how emissions are playing out over the globe? It's 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 not homogeneous. And and in the paper that I was talking about, which I just submitted, it's really interesting that. You know, you have most of the emissions from the northern hemisphere, and then the southern hemisphere is like bearing the whole. <laughs> you know, it's 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 bearing the weight of it, and it it was quite a surprise to me, even to the point that one of the the reviewers was was even sort of saying, "Really, are you sure?" You know, it, it was it was it was right. but it was it was clear, and it was. I'm happy that you are sort of you know making that point, um, even from from your perspective as well. So thank you for um for adding this in. I, I guess what I wanted to also uh, know is that what are some of the challenges that you face when you deal with these issues in different regions? What are some of the factors that you consider, for instance, if you are talking to a company in Nigeria or Ghana and then talking to a, a company in, in the Switzerland, how different is the experience? Um, I, I think I'll, I'll need to caveat that question a little bit because uh, currently um, my work with the Business for Nature Coalition um, really focuses on working with global organizations, right? So um, in, in most cases, I'm not working with SMEs or smaller you know, companies who sometimes do not even have okay. the resources or the teams to really look into, into these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, yeah, it might not be the most accurate reflections, but what, what happens is that you, know, you do speak to companies like Unilever's, the Nestle's, Olam's, who are global operations, and they do have, you know, arms and, and operations in, in the global south as well. Uh, and usually their perspectives are quite different from speaking to a company that's only operating in Nigeria or in, or, or in Ghana. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking about, about challenges that, you know, we face with, with businesses, um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, the business case for, for action is becoming clear, um, but it's not all the way clear yet, right? So ultimately businesses are structured to serve their shareholders and um, you know CEOs have that what they call the fiduciary duty to always act in the best interest of their shareholders and, and profits but the, the biggest challenge we have is really making that tangible case that taking action on climate on nature or inequality can directly lead to Profits, so you know, to build that business case and making it really clear why the business should invest in climate, should invest in nature, should assess their impact and dependence. Because all these things are very resource intensive, right? So you need to make sure that, from a business perspective, the company sees true value in in taking that step. And and that's where there's you know a lot of uh, you know convincing, but also a lot of research to make sure that we we have the right messaging um, for for companies. And it's not the same you know in one jurisdiction versus the other, right? I think um, for for companies who already understand their dependency on nature or on climate for their business to thrive, it's much more easier. But then you have companies who are now at the beginning of their sustainability journey. Um, and they, they need a lot more convincing to, to understand. 
And then I think uh, that the second challenge is just also helping them to navigate the tools, the methodologies, the resources available for them to actually take action. Because right now, you know, you, you go through the first one of convincing them, they're already like, okay, I get it now. What should I do? They look out there and there's like tons of things that they can be doing, right? In terms of assessing impact and dependencies, disclosing to different organizations, um, prioritizing what activity they should do, do first, um, commitments to deforestation, to fashion, to all of these things. So there's just tons of tools and methodologies and frameworks and things that they, they need to sort of engage with. And sometimes they just go in there and they're like paralyzed. They're like, okay, no, I don't know what to do. Um, and one of the biggest things that we're working on also at Business for Nature is trying to bring a lot of these organizations that are developing the tools, the methodologies and frameworks together to simplify and clarify, you know, some of these processes that businesses will have to, to engage with so that, you know, once they're ready to take action, um, there, there is a consistent, concise, a unified sort of pathway for them to engage. Um, and then I think the last challenge is really, you know, closing that amb ambition, being able to bring those businesses in front of the policymakers and say, hey, guys, this is what we're doing. Here are the case studies. We've tried these things. We think there's potential for us to have meaningful impacts on, on the environment. So we need X, Y, Z policies from you guys um, to even give us, you know, further confidence to, to invest more money or uh, take this action. That's not always uh, straightforward. And you also have to deal with, you know, some difficult governments as well who need some, some convincing. And, and, and those will be, I would say, the, the top three challenges. That's actually very, the last one was very, very important. I recently did uh, an, an interview with uh, another person on this podcast. His name is Isaac Stoddard. He's in Sweden. He recently published a paper called Three Decades of Climate Mitigation. Why haven't we bent the global emissions curve? And it was a, it was, <laughs> it was a very interesting discussion because we realized that uh, since the IPCC started working, you know, since the first publication and the, and the UFCCC, you know, started doing all these things, the Kyoto Protocols, the Paris Agreement, we have actually emitted more. <laughs> so it's like, well, what's happening, you know? And I think the COVID has taught us a lot of lessons that we can actually uh, do without a lot of things. Um, and, and I hope that we, we are learning lessons from that. But I, I hope so too. <laughs> I hope so too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think COVID yeah. was a very interesting litmus test for what can happen if we get rid yeah. of, you know, a lot of these things that we think yeah. we need. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. right after COVID, we also saw the trends, obviously, you know, coming back, travel starting, flights all over, <laughs> and global emissions immediately starting to skyrocket again. So um, I'm not yeah. sure if we are at the, at the space where we can confidently say we learned our lessons. Um, but I think from, yeah. from, from a climate policy space, we were in Glasgow for COP26, and I think the momentum that we're seeing um, is, is really encouraging. However, you know, the, the momentum is one thing we need to see the concrete yeah. action, right? The curve really needs to yeah. come down at some point. Um, yeah. IPCC yeah. just released uh, their latest um, report on climate change and mitigation, I think yeah. last two weeks. The ARC yeah, two weeks ago. 
Um, and, the, and the message, the headline that I was seeing from all of these uh, you know, reporting um, news outlets is that the time is now or, or never, really. It's like we need to bring down the curve now. We, we need that deep decarbonization across all economies, across heavy industries, across transport, across um, our, our own lifestyles. And it's, 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 you know, so cross-cutting that we, we need to do that now. Otherwise, you know, our chances of getting to 1.5 is so slim that, uh, you know, we, yeah. we might not be able to reach yeah. where we need to get to. I'm surprised the community is still very optimistic. I'm actually not very... We have to be. We have to be. It's very frightening. frightening. I'll tell you, I was speaking to my mother one day, and I think this was one of the days where I was not feeling my most optimistic self. Um, just try, you know, feeling like I'm in a safe space at home yeah. with my mother and, and I can, you know, tell her how bad things are going. And, I, I you know, I, I could see the, the sense of disappointment on her face and just, you know, how worried she was. And then I think I quickly realized that we, we are in a position where, um, you know, if you are working on, on this piece of work and you know how much effort is also being put into really reversing the, the actions, I think that there is a bit of responsibility to, to keep on that faith and to be able to also spread some of that hope around because it's very easy to go around being that prophet of doom, like, you know, from the graphs that I'm seeing, from the people that I'm engaging with, yeah. there is no hope. Just give up, <laughs> right? So I think there's a little bit of responsibility for us as well working in this space, and, and you as the scientists as well, to really help drive some of that faith and ambition and, and really, you know, rally society to push behind, um, you know, the lifestyle that would, would actually help us achieve. Because otherwise, yeah. I think, yeah, we would be heading a, a really bad place. Super exciting uh, conversation already. We are still here with uh, Michael Fosuhini Wise, and it's it's been a very exciting uh, conversation um, already. You've dived into so many things, and I think I'm really going to regret after uh, when we are doing the post-production of this that I didn't follow up. <laughs> No problem. We can do a part. We can do a part two. But I didn't follow up on uh, so many things. But I think there's a lot to digest out of the conversation uh, we have had today. One thing that is super exciting for me is I think everyone listening to this um, episode will probably pick up a piece from this because we keep there are this group of people who are pointing hands on their industries, companies, businesses. Change your ways. Do this. Do this. And it's really exciting and, okay, not necessarily exciting, but it's really eye-opening to hear from you working with these um, organizations to say that, okay, well, sometimes they understand that I have to do this. I know the impact that I'm making, but what should I do? There are so many tools um, out there that I could probably use, but which of them is making a more significant impact? Which of them will work for me? And so there are a group of people who are sort of, you know, helping them to sort of bridge this gap. And that is super important, the, the, the job that you're doing to help all these industries. It's good to know from the other side what is happening. Of course, there is this uh, giant called the greenwashing where other industries and other businesses are also sort of using 
um, like I said earlier, the color green to sort of prove that maybe they are being sustainable or, or probably they are contributing to this, but it's it's actually not. Um, I actually wanted to, I think you've touched so many things. We've talked about some of the challenges that are with the businesses, but there, there are two main things that we haven't uh, maybe touched yet. Um, you've also talked a little bit about your position and you are currently the climate and nature manager for um business for nature, right? How is it to be in that particular position? And is it fulfilling uh, to, to be in this particular um, environment working with these people? Um, all right. So I think my, my work has, has evolved a lot from just the title, right? So when you hear climate and nature manager, uh, my role, it was supposed to basically work with a group of um, businesses that we work with to make sure that we're tackling sustainability in a very holistic way, right? Um, I think currently, if you were to ask me, I would say that the world is facing three big challenges, which is climate change, nature loss, um, and social inequality. And there are a lot of sub, you know, challenges that fit into all of these three sort of categories. So my, my work is to ensure that when we're speaking about sustainability, when we're talking about action on sustainability and what we're speaking to policymakers on, on sustainability, we do that through these integrated lenses. We know that um, we, li we live in a very complex system, right? And history has taught us that we, we have actually been working in a bit of a siloed approach, right? So starting from the real convention, we have the, the UNFCCC looking at climate, we have the UN Convention on Biological Diversity looking at nature and biodiversity. We also have one on desertification, which is not also the, perhaps not the most um, talked about uh, convention. Uh, but my work really is to make sure that when we're speaking about sustainability, we're not talking in silos any longer. But we're talking about the interlinkages between climate, the impacts that have on, on nature, and how that ultimately affects people and, and inequality. So um, yeah, basically that's my, my work in a nutshell. So, you know, thinking about actions that companies can take, the policies, the tools, but all through um, that frame of an interconnected and interlinked uh, approach. Wow, that's, that's a very um, huge position to be in and really congratulations and thank you so much for uh, what you're doing in this space. What do you think it's important for the businesses to know about international climate policies? Maybe just this one point or two points that you think it's very important for these businesses to know and be aware that this is how the process goes and this is how it's implemented and this is how it operates with them and this is how maybe they should also hang along with the operations. I, I think, well, in, in, international policies are very interesting in that they're mostly obviously you know, treaty driven and they're very much government led, right? So I think that's the understanding, you know, just to be very clear that most of these treaties, whether it's the Convention on Climate Change or on Biological Diversity, these are officially government processes. Um, within these uh, frameworks, there is scope for business organizations and businesses to act as observers, but also beyond just observing the process and you know, having a real-time sense of where the policy directions are going, there, there are um, opportunities and avenues 
for businesses to have their voice heard and to have sort of um, their priorities also considered. I think what will be you know, revealing to a lot of, of businesses is the fact that there is room for businesses to have their voice heard in these processes, right? And I think the, the you know, one caution that I, I will also mention uh, related to a point that you made earlier around greenwashing. Um, I think it, it's a very slippery slope to, to try and thread. There's a really thin line if you're working at this intersection of private sector and, um, and, and policy. Because yes, you know, there are some business voices in there that are looking to maintain the status quo. And I think that's very, you know, it's very important that we, we make sure that the voices that are being um, given the platform to really help shape policy are the ones that are not in any way lowering the level of ambition. And that's what we try to, to do. We, you know, oftentimes uh, have issues around the kind of companies that we engage. I think in, in order for the business community to really contribute meaningfully to you know, a sustainable economy, we need to engage all companies, but with caution and to you know, varying degrees of influence, right? So if you want to really affect the impact of business on climate, for, you know, you need to engage with the oil and gas companies, the shells, but perhaps you don't start with them in the policy space. You need to work with them to see how best they can transform their business models, they, they transform their business operations, right? And then bring them into a space where they can advocate for um, policies that would even help them change more, right? Um, and I think that's, you know, the, the kind of message that I want to leave when, when we're talking about this greenwashing. It is, it is good to engage with, you know, all companies, um, but really we need to make sure that the companies that are being involved in these policy engagement opportunities are really the ones that are there to push for ambition in the right direction. Wow. Today, I think I'm, I'm back in school again. It's, it's been a very educative session, honestly. I think there are a lot of pieces to unfold. Uh, from what we have discussed, are there any uh, projects that are coming up that you think that you like to maybe um, highlight over here in, in your space? Um, things that you can recommend to any businesses um, that might be listening, any um, entrepreneurs or um, CEOs or anyone who is trying to dive into the space? Um, and how could people also collaborate with you? I'm sure that um, people might be interested in that as well. Right. Um, so I think that the organization that I work with, Business for Nature, has this um, very timely important campaign that we're currently running. And it's a very simple campaign. So um, it's called Nature is Everyone's Business. And what we are trying to do is really get as many business organizations to sign on to this campaign, um, which we are basically positioning to policymakers that the business community wants you guys as policymakers to put in place the right policies and, and measures to help halt and reverse uh, nature loss by, by 2030. 
Um, so this is something that is available on the Business for Nature website, www.businessfornature.org. And it's really the entry level engagement if you want to engage with my organization and, and you know, get more insights into the work that we do. We would be happy to you know, have you sign on, add your voice to, we currently have over a thousand companies um, that have signed up. Uh, we are looking to get as many companies because um, you know, the, the convention for biological diversity is currently in a process where later this year, hopefully um, they will be negotiating on a global biodiversity framework, which has some implications on you know, business uh, and, and what they do to help achieve that. So we want to really make sure that we're bringing as many business voices into those negotiations, saying that business is ready, business wants to act. Um, you know, we want to send the, the right messages. And if we have, you know, 10,000 organizations all saying, you know, that the same thing, I think that's, that's a really good um, signal. So uh, I think I would leave it at that. If there's any business, if you are a business, um, go to the Business for Nature website, sign up to our call to action, um, and then you'll be able to follow up with, you know, different engagement opportunities webinars, trainings, um, connect you with different organizations that are doing amazing work on how you as a company can start your nature positive journey, taking action um, within your own small circle with the resources you have um, to really start you know, contributing your quota. I think that's a really good message to end on yesterday as well, because you know, everybody has a role to play. So if you're lost and you know, thinking about how your company can really contribute to a sustainable future, you can reach out to us and nice actually you have sort of already almost fully answered the question that we had in mind uh following this <laughs> uh but just in case you have you still have extra words to say on that um uh I, we, we probably should have asked this question earlier i mean what is sustainability to you because it, it's it's a word that we've been saying from the from the beginning uh but i, I guess for me um what I'm probably more interested in is that I would want you to think about, you know, someone who's probably in high school or junior high school who might bump on this on this podcast, um, or maybe someone, you know, in their early stages in the university, um, uh, who who might be thinking of a career path in this direction, um, and you know, what could you tell them about sustainability and what you are doing towards it, and and how how this could be a real deal for them as a um, you know a, a life commitment, um, not just you know in um, minimal practices, but actually taking it very seriously as a career and you know as a lifestyle. My my first reaction was just to go back to my uh, sort of high school definition of what is sustainability, and you know the fact that it's taking action in a way that preserves. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, the environmental society for future generations. <laughs> exactly. Well, in a way that future generations can also benefit. But I, I think it, it makes a lot of sense even with this, within this context, right? I think uh, we, we are at a, a point in, in, in human um, life where we are really pushing the boundaries of our global economy, right? So we are really on the climate side going beyond what we haven't seen in, in hundreds of years. We're seeing a very drastic decline in, in, in the species and the rate of extinction is just 
going at a rate which is increasingly alarming. When you look at you know, social inequality, I was looking at other statistics that were saying that you know, the world's richest 1% own close to 50% of global wealth. That's crazy, right? And for me, sustainability is really this balancing act that we have to perform, this real magic that we have to perform to make sure that we are now operating within the boundaries of our planet, but at the same time trying to help close that social gap. So when we talk about sustainability, I think for a long time, you know, we've been programmed to think about sustainability only through an environmental lens, um, which, which is, you know, has been you know, the predominant view on sustainability for, for a long time. But I think sustainability has transcended that. It's so mainstream now that sustainability is our lives. We need to be able to you know, have financial sustainability, environmental sustainability, social sustainability. Um, and, and this is me saying this to the, you know, the young person that wants to take a career path in sustainability. You actually don't have to take a path in sustainability because it's not on the peripherals again. It's embedded in the mm. global economy. Like you can be a chief risk officer at a company and still operate with the principles of sustainability. You can be a communications director and still operate with the principles of sustainability. We don't need sustainability to be a sideshow anymore. We need to make sure that it's really integrated into our economy. And that's the only way that we can operate within this world's boundaries. And that's David's vision. <laughs> yeah, you have just summed up David's wow. vision. Awesome. awesome. I, I, I really just love this. I think you honestly don't help with um, how you're putting your answers because they just bring more ideas. And I don't know, it's... ah. Thank you so much, really. And I mean, I don't know what to say. Thank you so much for coming and for sharing your ideas with us. We really, really cherish every minute of this conversation. And I'm sure we are just going to dive into it again. And for sure, I know that those who are going to listen are definitely going to um, be equipped and also be encouraged about all the conversations that we've had. Definitely all details and references will be in the show notes for sure for you to um just take a peep and dive into all these issues again but before we let michael go um we have talked about climate action we have talked about involving the industries we've talked about sustainability and what it means we've talked about your position uh business for uh, nature and we've talked about so many things that the policies and how it goes and everything it's a very huge space but I would like you to pinpoint just one area. And if you would like to make a very significant change in, in the industry about, you know, how these businesses are being involved or probably how um, the policies are being made or probably our responses to it. I don't know which area you like to choose, but if you have the chance to make a change in the industry, what one thing would you change? I think I, I would like to meet companies where they are and in most cases that's really at the beginning um, which is getting them to understand their impacts 
on, on, on the environment. But not only that, even, perhaps even more importantly, their dependency on nature, climate, and people. That's, uh, and I think that education piece is very important because it's almost like a light switch moment when you see a company understand how impactful their business operation is on these three elements, climate, nature, and people, and how they also depend on these three elements. So I think just being able to educate as many companies to really understand this could really spark that revolution where they go through the process because it, it, it becomes so clear. Um, you have no idea how many companies that we speak to and they're not sure how they impact the environment and you are an oil and gas company and you are, you are a chemical company, you know, but once they, you know, see that they have that realization and they actually look down their horizon in terms of, you know, where things are going, they, they start to think about diversifying, thinking about making sure that their business is also around in 50 years, right? Um, a classic example, maybe not to name drop, you, we would have recently saw that, you know, many of these oil and gas companies are starting to rebrand. Shell, Total, Total is now called Total Energy. So it's not only known for oil and gas, so they're starting to expand their oil, uh, renewable portfolio and you know, starting to see how best they can transition to fit the energy demands of the future. But this is only possible because they understand, or they're starting to understand their impacts, but also the dependencies on, on, the, on the environment. Yeah, super excited that we actually ended this on, uh, on education and importance of, of it. Um, I think recently that happened in the U in the UK about the youth organization, you know, protesting and doing all that. Some were arrested and <laughs> people are giving and connecting, you know, reflecting this to uh, the recent movie. Um, don't don't look up. And because of that interview that happened, you know, <laughs> so it's it's really exciting because funny enough, on that particular interview, you realized those interviewing were practically on a different page than the activists. And I know for sure that people are thinking about their jobs. I mean, there's not a conversation for today, but um, it just came to mind because of um, the, the importance of how you highlighted the importance of education because companies come in and they practically do not know their impact. That That is very, for me, if I hear that, it's very strange to me because I think every company, I mean, when they're going to start, they think about how they're going to make money, how it's important for them to get back the money they're investing in. But surprisingly, it's not a priority for them to know that they are actually emitting or they have an impact on the environment. And it's it's interesting. We had a conversation with um, uh, one of the biggest rice farmers in, in, in Ghana, and he highlighted that one of the things that they are trying to do now is to just put a sentence, just one phrase on their packaging to tell people that don't waste food, right? And that was very exciting thing for me because I think it's going to make a lot of impact because people see the packaging and I think we see packages, we, didn't, we don't actually read into it that much, but it actually gets into our subconscious and it will slowly descend into people and it's a sort of education for people. And I'm sure you have lots of strategies that you're showing the industries, but on that note, really, thank you so much for making uh, time for this. Um, Daniel, I don't know if you have any follow-up, but 
um, Michael, do you have anyone to say um, hi to or uh, give some shout outs to, especially today uh, on Ed Day? No, we'll be releasing this soon. I think it won't be too bad to give some shout outs. <laughs> Um, no, thank you guys so much. I think this has been a really interesting conversation as well. Um, in terms of sh shout outs, I think there are just so many people that I, I would like to give a shout out to that I don't want to start a long list. Um, I, I will give a shout out to anybody that's, you know, taking action on Earth Day, doing something um, in their own to, you know, protect the environment. Um, to ultimately protect the human species. Um, I think um, you're doing a great job. So shout out to you. All right. Thank you so much for coming, Daniel and uh, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks to Daniel for coming as well. <laughs> <laughs> Hey there, thank you so much for sticking to the end of this episode. Now there is a call to action. So why don't you engage with our community of green charters on our social media platforms? Find more details and links in the show notes. Get involved with the podcast by emailing us at glcpodcast at echoamidsolutions.com or DM by our social media platforms. We cannot do the same things expecting different results. The urgency of climate change demands actions now and not in 2050. So dear Green Chatters, see you on the next episode and remember, live green.